It was nearly half-past six by the time I found Marchmont's house, a prosperous terrace on the west side of Montague Square. An amber softness glimmered behind the leaded fanlight. I had knocked and was still busy cleaning my boot heels on the porch's scraper when the door swung open and Rennett, his chief secretary, stood there, a vanishingly slender man, whose spindly legs and beaky nose put me in mind of a heron. My breath plumed frostily as I bid him good evening. I had met this gentleman at the office on the Monday I began my employment, and had already noted the shrewdness of his gaze as it swept the whole newsroom and almost instantly picked me out from the stragglers. Without a word, he had crooked his finger, beckoned me over like a schoolmaster spotting the new boy in the assembly hall, and coolly recited my instructions for the day. Now, on the porch, those appraising eyes once again conducted a rapid inventory of my person, perhaps pausing to wonder why, in such a climate, it was a bitter night in February, I had chosen not to wear a topcoat. With a jerk of his chin, he admitted me to the high-ceilinged hallway, and the gas jets flared in their brackets from the sudden rush of cold I brought in. Following him down the hall, I happened to glance up the staircase and saw a girl in a nightgown, watching us from the shadows. I did not yet know that Marchmont was, amongst other things, a father of six. Rennett led me into a reception room which evidently adjoined his master's office, for through the closed double doors could be heard a booming laughter that I instinctively identified as Marchmont's, though I had never had the acquaintance of the man before this evening. The laughter, full of rippling confidence, seemed to extend an invitation, no, an order, to join in, and by the sound of things his present company were eager to oblige him. Rennett, who showed no sign of listening to the merriment next door, gestured for me to take a seat on the sofa. He noticed my shivering as I sat down and warmed my hands at the fire. These occasional Friday nights were meant, I gathered, to be at-ease encounters between the governor, as Marchmont was known to everyone, and his team of inspectors though my inward commotion of nerves at the prospect of being introduced could not be quite stilled. I had laid aside my small briefcase, which Rennett's attentive eye now fell upon. "'Your report is in there?' he asked. I nodded, and, unlocking the clasp, drew out a thin sheaf of loose fool's cap, closely written in my sloping and rather blotchy script that made every vowel look identical. I was at that time inclined to believe that a gentleman's handwriting should not be altogether legible. I handed them over and saw him frown as he rifled the pages. Without looking at me, he said, These are the notes you took today? No, they are the whole week's. He did look at me now. His lips started to purse but he continued examining the contents. I shifted in my seat and stared down at my hands. I was once more transported back to the schoolroom. Presently, he raised his eyes again and said, 
rather exiguous for five days' work. I wasn't sure what exiguous meant, but sensed it did not signify approval. He sighed, removed his spectacles, and pinched the bridge of his nose. I take into account that this is your first week on the paper, and that the work can be troublesome. But there is, nonetheless, a standard of reportage expected of our contributors. It requires a certain finesse. He was interrupted at this moment by the opening of the double-leafed doors, and the emergence of two prefectorial young men, both bearded and trimly dressed, their bodies canted at a deferential angle to an older, larger fellow, who swaggered urbanely between them and then paused on the threshold. This was Marchmont, bobbing his head mischievously towards his departure.